important. All right, so I'll leave it at that. You guys pray about it. All right, now, here's the, here's the, the fun thing. We're in a series um, called Seasons, and I've really, really, really enjoyed this series. I don't know when it's going to end, because it was supposed to go six weeks, and it's no, there's no way it's going to go six weeks. I have so much more that I want to share. Every sermon I want to preach on seems to be like a three-part sermon. So it's going to go as long as we need it to go. All right, a few weeks ago, we talked about biblical manhood, all right? What was biblical manhood? Then we had, you know, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and I didn't want to just, you know, break it up with biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, but we, had, we talked about biblical manhood. And what was exciting to me is the feedback that I've been getting from the women. It's, it was just as uplifting to the women as it was to the men. It was just as significant to the women as it was to the men. And I've been really, really encouraged by the reports that I've been getting about people's spiritual growth. People stepping up, especially a lot of the men stepping up and doing things in their spiritual walk and their spiritual journey within their family that they've never done before. After a few of those sermons, people decided, hey, this is something I need to do. I I need to live this out in my life. Sometimes you just don't know, right, guys? I mean, unless someone tells you. I remember as a a young man, 17 years old, started going to church, and and my youth pastor would ask me, well, how how, how are you treating this girl you started to date? And I said, well, you know. And he would lay out what the Bible would say of how I'm supposed to treat this, this young lady. And I didn't know. I didn't know until he told me. And so... Sometimes you just don't know, but when you do know, it's important that we apply that to our lives. And the encouraging thing for me is to see how many of you are applying these truths to your lives. So now it's the women's turn. All right. And a lot of women are kind of joke with me. Oh, man, I'm going to sit in the back and we're joking around a little bit. But I want to tell you. I think you're going to be really, really encouraged this morning. Next week, I think I'm going to offend everyone. But this week, I think your women are going to be really, really encouraged. So I want to start by asking you a question. All right? Asking you a question. Who are you letting define you as a woman in the 21st century? Who are you letting define you as a woman in the 21st century? Because while so many people reject a biblical worldview of womanhood, they fail to acknowledge the reality of the alternative. This is important. People say, well, I don't believe what the Bible says about women, blah, 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 blah. Matter of fact, they don't know what the Bible says about women. So they're rejecting something they don't really understand. And most Christ- some Christians, a lot of Christians don't even understand. But if you're going to reject a worldview and you're going to choose to follow another worldview, you have to understand what the alternative, what is the alternative? Where does that lead me? If we follow the wisdom of the world, we need to be honest about where that worldview will lead us. You need to follow it to its logical conclusion, and people don't do that. They say, I reject this, I don't like this. But then they go in this direction and don't even ask where that's leading them. Where does that worldview lead you? So if you're rejecting a biblical worldview of womanhood, then you have to say embracing a different worldview of womanhood. And where does that take me? See, when, when we recognize God as, the, as the, author, the, the authority in our lives, as our creator, we find that we have value, men and women, we have value outside of culture, and outside of individual input. 
I have value because I'm created in the image of God outside of what anyone else or anything else says about me. If, however, you take God out of the equation, men and women have no value. If you take God, if there's no God, you take God out of the equation, then men and women have no value because there's no reference point for their worth. Where's your reference point? I have value. Says who? There's no reference point for your value. There's no reference point for purpose. There's no reference point for your worth. Without God, your value is based on what the individual decides it is. And that individual at some point may be Hitler. And then he decides what your, and if you're a Jew, he decides what your value is. And he puts you in a gas chamber. Or what the culture decides it is. Or maybe what you decide, maybe how you feel at a certain time or a certain season of your life about yourself. It's based upon those things. What an individual may think, what a culture in general, and you were, if you lived in the past, maybe the culture believed that there, was, there should be human sacrifices. And they decided you should be one of the human sacrifices. Or maybe, again, your feelings, if you're a teenager or whatever, how you feel about yourself at a certain season of your life. Here's the reality. My value, my worth, my identity is not wrapped up in what someone else thinks, what an individual thinks, or what the entire culture thinks about me, or honestly, how I even feel about myself at a certain point. My value isn't determined by how I feel about myself or by what culture or what individual thinks. My value is determined because I'm created in the image of God, period. I have value outside of what everyone and everything else, everyone else or everything, culture, thinks. We have to, you have to understand that. The alternative is also True. See, here's the thing. This is interesting. The concept of the concepts of value and purpose and meaning and identity and worth are Judeo-Christian concepts and constructs. Okay. So, in other words, in order to argue with me, if you're sitting here disagreeing with me, in order to argue with me on this subject, you have to actually borrow from my worldview to have a conversation with me about it. Because you take God out of the equation, what does, what, does, what does it mean to have meaning to your life? Value, purpose, I have purpose. In order to have a conversation about purpose, you have to borrow from my Christian worldview. Because if there's no God, there's no such thing as purpose. So you have to follow your worldview to its logical conclusion. See, famous, there's a few famous atheists that I really like to read. One is Bertrand, Bertrand Russell, and the other one's Friedrich Nietzsche. And if, if, you, if you go back and study them, what they'll tell you is they, they understood that if you deny the existence of God, you have to live with the consequences. All right? So if you're not going to hold to a biblical worldview of women, then you have to, you have to hold to the consequences of your belief system. You have to, that's, just, that's just logic. And those consequences include the loss of human purpose and value. Because here's the thing, outside of a biblical worldview, you have a bunch of chance mutations, that's us, all right, giving their opinion, their feelings, their ideas, 
And really, all those feelings and opinions and perspectives are just chemical reactions in your brain brought about by certain outside stimuli. Because that's how you evolve. So it's not really, you don't really love. Love is just a, a chemical reaction in your brain's an outside stimuli. So your feelings, ideas, and whatever else are just basically chemical reactions in your brain. And that's what you're left with. So you have to follow your worldview, your thought process, to its logical conclusion. So I'm now going to lay out a biblical worldview of women. Okay, I'm going to lay out what does the Bible say about women? The Bible is unique, first off, in describing a woman's value as a complementary companion. Okay, and it's absolutely amazing. No other ancient text in the Middle East offers commentary on the creation of women. Just the Bible. Okay, the creation of women themselves. It's, it's, it's in the Bible that we learn the, the important, the significant and important role women have had since the beginning of, of human history, if you will, human existence. We understand the important role we, we are given and we, we have a commentary, we, we have a true understanding of, the, of a woman's role from the beginning of existence. Both men and women were created in the image of God. According to Genesis 1.27, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This morning, as we study the word of God, I want to let Jesus, okay, I want to let Jesus Christ define biblical womanhood. And then I want to let you decide where you find the most value. In the culture and what the culture says or in what Jesus says. Because this is what people attack. Oh, the church, so antiquated. The church and Jesus and the Bible and God, who wants to be a part of that? I'm gonna, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say about biblical womanhood? What does it say about you as a woman, as a person? What does Jesus say about you as a woman? First, Jesus didn't let culture define a woman's value. Okay, Jesus, I was reading. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about what I'm going to tell you. I am. I really am not kidding. All right. I said yesterday to someone, I love Jesus. And they were like, yeah, (laughs) you're a pastor. You're a Christian. I know you love Jesus. I said, no, no. The more I read, the more in depth. I don't care how old you are as a Christian. You can keep going deeper and get down to another layer. And the the more the the deeper the layers that go down, the more I love Jesus because he's so incredibly awesome. All right. And you'll be saying he's so incredibly awesome at this sermon is over as well. So Jesus did not allow culture to define a woman's value. Like I said, in Genesis chapter one, it tells that men and women are created in the image of God and they have equal value, equal standing in his eyes. All right. In the eyes of God, the father. Now, this is important. In ancient times, there was no gender equality. And where, the, 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 the time in which Jesus lived and when he walked around, there was, no, I, there was no concept of gender equality. In Jesus' time, women were treated as um, basically worthless. They were, they were nearly worthless, even lower than in the Old Testament culture. I want you to, I want you to get the concepts here, okay? Understand the time in which Jesus walked. Greek culture, for example, um, influenced the belief that women succumbed to sexual temptation greater than men did. 
Okay, they succumb to sexual temptation easier than men. Old Testament code, old I say actually actually said say old Jewish code said that it was more dangerous to walk behind a woman than it was to walk behind a lion. All right, because you know those women always fallen into sexual temptation. They were the ones who caused all of these problems. If a man was immoral in some way with a woman, the woman was to blame. It was her fault. If, I, if I'm lured into temptation, if I fall into temptation, if I do something immoral with the woman, it's the woman's fault. Greek culture, the culture at the time, the entire, the entire Hebrew culture, that's what they believed. It is more dangerous to walk behind a woman than it is to walk behind a lion because you know those women... You know us men, we're just innocent as all get out. You know, you know, we can't. It's all you guys who are like, this is the culture at the time. Your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault. Now, and, and I was, as I was studying that, I started to ask myself, and I think I've asked this question before. Have you ever wondered where the guy was in the story of the woman caught in adultery? Where was the guy? Right? Where was he in all of this? Well, you know, it's like they were ready. They're, they're ready to stone her. They walk up all like, you know, we're going to trick this dude. You know, we caught this woman in adultery. Now, you had to see in order to accuse someone of committing adultery, you ha- they had to be in the act. OK, so first off, had they find someone in the act? All right. Unless they set the whole thing up. And then my question is, where was the guy when they pull her in front of Jesus and want to stone her? Where's the guy? Makes sense in the whole culture. Jesus, though, wasn't buying it, okay? He wasn't buying it. And when he was finished writing on the ground, after they told their thing, he finished writing on the ground, he basically confronts them in their own sin. You without sin cast the first stone. Probably thinking also, where's the guy? Okay, you bring the woman over here, why don't you bring the man over here as well? But he was without sin, cast a phone's first stone, and then he shows her grace and tells her to go and sin no more. Doesn't like, doesn't jump on the bandwagon of the culture at the time. It's the woman's fault, right? Because you're caught, if you're committing adultery, it's her fault because it's, 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 it's more dangerous to walk behind a woman. But then, okay, let's keep going. Then Jesus challenges, okay? He gets, he gets even more intense. He challenges their perspective. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he turned the culture on its ear. He turned the culture upside down. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, I've read that story a million times. Understand the culture in which the man lived, okay? Woman's fault, woman's fault, woman's fault. If I get caught in adultery, if something happens, if I'm in an immoral act, it's her fault. She's more, she's more drawn to sexual temptation than I am. So if anything happens, it's her fault. And then Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount. For goodness sake, think about this. In the culture in which he lived, he taught the total opposite. He taught the complete opposite of his society. So it wasn't just a cool story. In our culture, you go, yeah, yeah. You know, if I, if I look at a woman lustfully, you know, I've, I've committed drugs. We, we read that differently in, in, in our culture. In his culture, he gets up and says that. I, I was saying to someone this morning, I don't know how he lived past like six months. But by how he, what he said, every time he opened his mouth, and the Bible says every, they, they picked up stones to stone him, and they picked up stones to stone him. Why do you think they were always picking up stones to stone him? Because he was saying something everybody liked. Jesus was just a flowing-haired guy who kind of floated around. He was so nice to everybody. Not at all. 
Not at all. So he basically preaches a sermon on the mount. He challenges their muddle-headed thinking of only blaming the women and confronts the men's lustful thoughts in a culture where they didn't even want to talk about their own lustful thoughts because it's the women's, right? They're the ones. So Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, if you think it, you've done it. He confronts their own lustful thoughts. It must have, I mean, he lets them know that lust originates in their own hearts. Don't blame someone else. Don't blame someone else. Lust originates in your own heart. He dropped the responsibility squarely in their laps. I mean, can you, um, can you just imagine how that talk went over in a male-dominated society like he was in? Can Think about that. I mean, I hope you guys, are, if you're not excited, get excited, okay? Gets better. All right, so Jesus does that. So, he's, so you see how he's treating, how he's thinking. He's, he's kind of processing through and telling everyone which way is up, if you will. Now, I'll stop there and pause and say, do you think Jesus thinks of women as less than? I'm just asking of Jesus. Do you think that Jesus Christ thinks of women as less than? Next, Jesus didn't let culture define a woman's intellect. Again, culturally, during the time of Jesus, education for women was completely discouraged. Okay? Totally discouraged because they didn't have the mental capacity to really understand the deeper truths of what you'd be talking about anyway. So why educate them? They didn't have the intellect of a man. According to first century Jewish custom, a, a, a woman wasn't allowed to observe. She was allowed to observe, but, but not participate in temple ceremonies. So a woman could, she could observe what was going on, but she could not participate in the temple ceremonies. Rabbinic literature is, is just filled with contempt for women. A woman could not be um, a disciple of a rabbi at that time. Could not be. Not possible. We're not allowed to be uh, we're disciples of rabbis. They had minimal, minimal education just in what was good for them to do. But they couldn't be disciples of a rabbi. They were treated as a little, I'm going to say a little, little better than slaves. But in, in reading the culture at the time, I'm probably giving them more than I should. Okay. They, they were basically treated like slaves. Um, but that's not what Scripture taught. See, what I'm, not, I'm not talking about what the Old Testament said. I'm talking about what culture, religious, even religious culture at the time was saying. That's not what the Scriptures taught. And Jesus wanted everyone to know it. Okay? He's God. He wrote it. He wrote the Old Testament, all right? Jesus is God, and Jesus wanted to make sure everyone understood that what they were doing in that culture was not correct. He took every opportunity he had, okay, to talk to and engage with, if you will, women, talk to them and teach them. He spent time teaching women. He spent time talking to women all the time in a culture. That where, you, where men really weren't allowed to, if you will, engage with women in a conversation on the street. So again, here's Jesus, fully God, fully man, walking around and basically doing the right thing. And what was the right thing? Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus... Now, again, I'm going to say this and you're like, yeah, big deal. No, it is a gigantic deal. 
Jesus carries on a theological conversation with the woman at the well. He's carrying on a theological conversation with her. You weren't even supposed to, and, and here, let's not even throw out the fact that she was a Samaritan woman, okay? Samaritans were despised. So Jesus is not only sitting down, and then he says, can you draw me some water? He's going to drink out of the, he's drinking out of a, of, of a, of a cup, or he's drinking out with this other, this is, out, this is completely outrageous in his time. He sits down and talks to a woman at the well. Not only is she a woman, but it's a Samaritan woman who are completely and utterly despised. The woman, if you read that story, she's shocked that he starts talking to her. Read the story. She's like, I mean, if you could just sense her going, are you, you can't be talking to me. Number one, I'm a woman. Number two, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. You, you, cannot, be, you, you cannot be engaging me in a conversation. Jesus was engaging her in a conversation and he was engaging her in a theological conversation. This is absolutely Stunning. Stunning. Remember the, the story of Mary and Martha? Right? You remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus defends Mary's choice, okay, not to go into the kitchen and help Martha. Right? And you think, well, big deal. Um, here's a big deal. He lets her sit at his feet. Again, big deal. It's a gigantic deal. Because at that time, at that time, People who sat at a rabbi's feet were considered their closest disciples. Jesus wasn't stupid, and he wasn't going, oh, it doesn't matter, he sat at my feet. He knew exactly what he was doing when he let Mary sit at his feet. He's teaching all the time. You can't do that. The the, the Pharisees are like losing their cookies. They're like smoke coming out of their ears. They didn't know what to do half the time because he's like reclining at the table and he lets a person do this and a woman comes over and talks to him and he lets this person talk to him over here and if he's a leper or whatever else. And they're like, what are you doing? We have rules and you're breaking our rules. And Jesus is going, well, I have rules too. Um, I'm not breaking any of them. You guys are all messed up and I'm trying to straighten you out. So Mary wants to sit at his feet, and he said, that's the better thing to do. And he backs Mary at not going in the kitchen, okay, with Martha to do all that other stuff. He says, Mary's, Mary's chosen what's better, which is sit at my feet. Again, Jesus is trashing cultural norms and biases. He's trashing them. He's turning the world upside down. Women were considered inferior intellectually, and usually they were confined to domestic duties. But but Jesus recognizes Mary's intellect, and he recognizes her intellect, and he recognizes her spiritual curiosity, and he puts her in a place of honor even amongst the men. Like he recognizes this woman, she's sitting down, she's, "Tell, tell me more. That that sounds amazing. Tell me more. And he recognizes her intellect and her spiritual curiosity, and he honors her among the men. All through this, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he's honoring her. He's respecting her. He's giving her value. Understand why I'm going through this, okay? He's saying, I'm God. I created you. You have value. I'm going to talk to you. I don't care what the rules are these people make up. They're wrong. They're completely and utterly and totally wrong. We're going to talk. I'm going to talk theology with you. I'm going to value you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you the respect, honestly, that I've created you 
with and that you deserve. And that's what Jesus did. And he could care less what everybody else was thinking about it. Jesus knows that the female mind is just as competent as the male mind, and in some cases, more so. I'm not trying to be funny. Jesus created us. God created us. And he knows us. And the female mind is even more competent in some areas than the male mind. And the male mind, the way it's designed, thinks differently as well. Jesus understood that. Why? Because he created us. And so when he interacted with women, he interacted because he knew they had intellectually sharp minds. And so he talked to them like they had intellectually sharp minds. You remember the woman who came and poured alabaster perfume on Jesus, right? Oh, man. He's reclining at the table and in comes this woman and she starts pouring alabaster perfume on his head and his feet and he's doing all this stuff. Not sure if both those stories are the same, but I'm not going to get into that right now theologically. But she pours this on his feet and everyone has a, the disciples have a fit. They pitch a fit. Oh, she could, she's wasting all of this and blah, blah, Jesus, instead of going along, yeah, what are you doing? I can't believe you did that. He recognizes why she was doing it. He recognizes her, her thought process. He recognizes her heart. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 13, this is what he says to them. Truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world. Now, hear me. What is the most important thing in the history of humanity? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. So wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Jesus honors what she does. Think about it. We're still talking about her today. I ju- we just talked about this again today, 2018. Whatever the gospel is told, this what this woman has done. Inc- absolutely incredible the way he honors this woman. Now, I, re- I really need you to kind of, if you, if you have fallen asleep, what are you doing? Okay, but if you, if you're, I really need you to follow me on this one. All right, this is so this is so important. The greatest truth, the the greatest truth on which the gospel hangs, okay, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is absolutely, completely, one hundred percent meaningless. Okay, everything depends on it. Last week, we took the entire Sunday to talk about its significance, the, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We took an entire day and we celebrate that. And Jesus holds women in such, in such high regard. He has such great value. They have such great value to him that he, re- he reveals himself to the women first. Okay. Think about this. Now, I want you to think about the culture again. Everyone, all male minds are thinking one way about women in this culture. Jesus Christ, the entire, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on which our entire worldview hangs, okay? Our faith, our worldview, uh, the meaning of everything to us hangs. And, and Jesus entrusts it to the women, Again, this was totally against culture at the time. Com- completely. Com- absolutely completely. And it's also, as I, was, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, this is another reason, Greer, why you know the Bible's true. I'm sc- here, just excuse me, but what moron at the time 
would write that unless it was true. I'm going to fake all these people out and start a religion. And I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a religion based on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And women were the first ones to see him raised from the dead. That's why I know the Bible's true. The most significant moment in history, the truth on which our entire worldview depends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was given to the women whose testimony at that time would not even hold up in a court of law. Their testimony wouldn't even hold up in that culture in court, but Jesus is putting the resurrection, okay, of himself and the foundation of our faith in the hands of the women first. I think that's really cool. I really do. Why don't you go back and do a little bit of study on Eve and falling in the garden and then Jesus' resurrection and Mary Magdalene being the first one to see. I think that's, just do a little study on that. I did. I couldn't put it all into one sermon or I would have because it's absolutely fascinating. Fact. Jesus gave incredible honor and respect to women throughout his ministry and throughout his life far beyond the value that our culture in America in 2018 gives women. Far beyond. Jesus wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't even, he wouldn't accept the kind of ridiculous behavior that women put up with in the culture in 2018. This culture slams Jesus, slams Christianity for their view of women. And Jesus' view of women was so far beyond our American culture in 2018, it boggles the mind. And then to put an exclamation point on his teaching, he tells the men, he tells the men that you need to love your wives as Christ, as I have loved the church. Love your wives as I have loved the church. That's the greatest compliment that anyone can give a single person, an individual person. Women are to be loved the same way that Christ loved humanity, that Christ loved us. We are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. There is no other worldview in history that gives women the respect and the honor that Jesus Christ gives them. No other. No other worldview in the history of humanity that gives women the honor and respect that Jesus Christ gives them. What he wants us to learn through all of this is that none of us is greater than the other. None of us is greater than the other. Um, We all have been given the same privilege to take our strengths, and to take our gifts and to carry God's purposes forward. Each one of us, men and women, have been given strength. We've been given gifts. We've been given talents. We've been given abilities. We've been given all these things by God, all of that value that we've been given by God. And each of us is to carry his purposes forward. So does the Old Testament back up Jesus? Does it back up what Jesus is saying? See, God is the God of humankind. Um, and he treats all of us with intrinsic worth. If you read scripture in a vacuum, you miss such incredible, like what happens is 
even in our Christian lives today, we, we read Scripture in a vacuum. We get, we get some ideas in our head about what the Bible says about certain things, and we start reading Scripture in a vacuum in that, in that mindset, from that perspective. And we miss out on the fact that there were such incredible people in the Bible, such incredible women in the Bible. One, maybe, I'm going to use Deborah and Ruth, for example. These two incredible women with such they, women throughout the Bible have such intellect and such wisdom and such strength and such charm. But we miss that when we pigeonhole people into certain categories. We can do it to men and we can do it to women. And it's important to realize as we look at Deborah and we look at Ruth, the difference between these two women. They were they were so different. But God gifted each of them. They were different in how they lived their lives and, and the roles that they played within the Old Testament. But God gifted them equally. Their strength came from one source. The strength of Deborah and the strength of Ruth came from one source, but were, they were experienced in entirely different ways. Deborah, a Hebrew woman, okay, was a judge of Israel, a judge for the people. And we learn that in the book of Judges. Deborah, Deborah was, uh, she was a wise woman. She was a strong woman. She was a woman who had the respect of all the people in the country. She was a woman who led her people into battle. Okay, that's Deborah. Strong, wise, led her people into battle. All those characteristics. She was a fierce woman. But she was a woman who was trusted she was a woman who was trusting. I say fierce. I say that in a positive way. Okay? She had chutzpah. All right? Both of them did, Deborah and Ruth. But she was a fierce woman. Ruth is a tragic yet remarkable love story. She's a woman who really loved her family and who went through some tragedies. She lost her husband, but then fell in love again with another man, Boaz. Boaz said that he would take care of, he would protect Ruth and her mother and her and her mother-in-law Naomi. Okay, so we have that as a backdrop. She becomes she becomes the mother of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. That starts the line of Jesus. Okay. Absolutely two different types of women, two different types of people that God uses in incredible ways in his word. See, as you can see here, these women, like men, come in, in different types and different personalities. And what we like to do in our, in our own culture, what people like to do, is pigeonhole people. And then we lose something from that. So we, ha we all have roles to play in God's grand epic story. We have these roles to play. And together, men and women make up the, the, the image and glory of God. We make that up together, working together, together the way God has designed us. I'm looking at the clock here and I'm thinking, do I go into this next point? Because it's really amazing. Um, hmm. I think I'll do it. All right, do it. I'll do it. Okay, so I want to spend the rest of our time, maybe eight more minutes, eight, nine more minutes, um, talking about what God's purpose was for creating woman, women as a helper. As a, we use that word helper in Genesis. Why did God create women as a helper? That word helper in Genesis. Okay. 
When we hear the word helper in our culture, we usually think of less than. Now, I'm not being mean. I'm just thinking like we think of my little helper, right? In the kitchen, making the cookies. Can I help? Yes, my little helper, right? Or we think of the carpenter's helper. And the carpenter's helper is, here's the carpenter, right? And then you have his helper, right? And that's the way we think about it in English because that's the way it's laid out for us in English. But this is interesting. In Genesis 2.18, we discover the one thing that was, that was not declared good in all of God's creation. Here it is. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The same verse includes God's solution to that problem. Not good for man to be, that man should be alone. What's God's solution? I will make him a helper, helper fit. Two words we're going to look at. For him. Eve was the solution to Adam's deficiency. Okay, it's not a bad deficiency. We're just saying it is not good for him to be alone. Eve is the answer. Okay, she's the solution to Adam's deficiency. In the English, the word help can be used in a broad range of ways, if you will. Of, it has a broad, broad range of connotations. Help can refer to a simple, modest act. You helped me. Thank you. You brought me a cup of water. Okay? So in, in our culture, it can be used as a, a simple, modest act. Or it can refer to something that is vital and significant. Okay? So you have simple acts, simple, modest acts, or vital and significant. An example of vital and significant, keep, stay with me. An example of vital and significant is, for, uh, is, is a life-saving assistance that a doctor would give you. So you, someone has a heart attack and a doctor rushes over and saves their life or someone's in a car accident. It's a life-saving okay, assistance that a doctor would bring. That's vital. That's when we talk about, we talk about a, a vital act or vital help. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for helper that's used in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18 and verse 20, is pronounced Azer. Azer, okay? And Azer always, hear me out, I'm using this word, always is used in the Old Testament in the context of vitally important. Always. So when the, word, when the Hebrew uses the word helper, it's always used as vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support. Always. Vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support. So again, God provided a helper, vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support. The word save, the word, the, word, the, word, the word help often means like to save or to be strong. Okay? To save or to be strong. The general sense of azer is one who helps someone in need. Someone who's helping someone who is weak or in need. That's the way the word is used in the Old Testament. The word is even used of God in Psalm 115, verses, five, verses 9 through 11. It says, all you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help, that word, azer, and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their azer, help, and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Same word. And it's important to note here that the Bible never views God as a helper subservient to humans. 
Okay? The Bible uses the word help. God is my helper and my strength. God is my helper and my shield. God is my helper. Not one time is that word used for God being subservient to humans. So in the same way, we should, under, we should understand that the role of helper in Genesis 2.18 should not be used as a subservient role either. Not my little helper. Not my, not my here's, here's me as a carpenter, my carpenter's helper. Okay? That's not how it's used. An ideal partner seems to be the thought that's best used here. An ideal helper seems to convey the, the, the real idea or the best, the best connotation. The second Hebrew, important Hebrew word here, and it's translated fit in the English, is konegdo. Okay? Konegdo. It, this, I love this. Okay, write this down. This is so awesome. It literally means according to the opposite of him. Helper fit. So vital, always in a vital role. Fit according to the opposite of him. I think that's awesome. Okay, so in some cases, opposites do attract, right? In other words, the focus is on an appropriate match. Eve was an appropriate match. Eve was, the, was not created above or below Adam, but she was complementary to Adam. Each animal that Adam named was an appropriate match, had an appropriate match. So Adam names all the animals, right? And they each had an appropriate match. Adam is given a companion that fits him perfectly. God says he needs a companion that fits him perfectly. Eve, in other words, was just right for Adam. Just, she was just right for Adam. So when Adam saw Eve, because here's the thing, it says, you know, that when God said it is not good for man to be alone, it implies that Adam was incomplete by himself. He was incomplete by himself. So in other words, when Adam saw Eve, he stood there, I'm sure he said, you complete me. <laughs> right? That's what he said. It's not in the Bible, but just read between the lines. He said, you complete me. And I'm sure Eve responded, come on, you had me at hello. <laughs> right? You had me at Hello. She was, the perf- she was the perfect match for him. She was the perfect match for him. I wanted, I wanted to lay, before I say that, it, when, Eve, when Eve was Adam, by Adam's side, Adam experienced the joy of what it meant to love another person. I mean, in a way that is far beyond what, what, what some of us can even imagine, right? That first, that first experience there. Now, here's, here's the reason I laid this all out. I wanted to lay a foundation this morning because we cannot understand our roles as men and women in every season of our lives if we start off going down the wrong theological path. We need to go down the right theological path. Next week, we're going to talk about roles. We're going to define those roles. We're going to talk about roles. And I guarantee you that I'm going to probably offend everyone, and I'm okay with that. Okay, I've been studying and studying and studying and studying them. I'm not going to lay out what the culture thinks or what the culture felt and what the culture feels or whatever else. 
We're going to lay out the truth, those roles. But we need to have a theological foundation of what is biblical manhood and what is biblical womanhood before we get down to the fact of what has God called us each to do in our roles in every season of our lives. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this time that we can spend together. Thanks for the opportunity, Lord, to to just study your word, just be able to go through and study your word and get a true understanding of, of, of how you feel about each of us as men and women, how you love us, how you cherish us, how you value us, how you give us worth and dignity and honor. God, I pray that every single one of us, as we study, as we've already studied biblical manhood and we're studying biblical womanhood, that, that men and women would recognize how important that we are to you and treat each other with that kind of love and respect. So God, we give this time to you. We praise you and thank you for the way you're helping us grow in our faith. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Have a great week.